You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's looking at the clock, and it says 25 or 6 to 4. It's <laughs> Mr. Jeff McLarge. Oh, does anybody really know what time it is, Bill? Oh, does anybody my really God. care? Oh, dude. Years <laughs> and years ago, like long before there was like cell phones. Yeah. You know, because now everybody has their phone in their pocket. Right. So, like, back when we were, you know, kids or young adults or whatever, you know, we didn't have cell phones and not everybody wore a watch. I don't like wearing watches. They, right. I don't find them, yeah, I find them irritating. So, anyway, uh, if I ever asked this one dude what time it was, he would always start singing, does anybody really know what time it is? Oh, man. Like, without fail, every single time. It's like... To the point where I, I, I think he just wanted me to stop asking what time it was. It's entirely possible. Maybe he was trying to, you know, he was unfriending people before Facebook was a thing. You know, I, <laughs> that's how I unfriend you. you. Ask me a question, I give you the smart me terrible lyric from a crappy Chicago song, and now you don't want to be friends with me anymore. You stop talking to me. I think he actually listens to the show. <laughs> and now we lost a listener, too. <laughs> so, so speaking of, uh, like I just mentioned, cell phones... I just got a new cell phone. Well, sort of new, right? I, I went into the place. I was like, "Look, I need a new phone, but I don't, I don't buy new phones." Okay, twelve hundred dollars is ridiculous. Right. I go, "What do we have? Like last year's model or or whatever?" Right? I go, "That one over there is eight hundred. That's more like it." He goes, "Oh, let me see if we have any in the back." Now, I don't know if what the back room of this T-Mobile place looks like. It looks like a pretty small store. But it must be Val Haller back there because that guy was... <laughs> the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah, the guy was gone for like a good five or ten minutes. And I'm just oh, over there like... I'm sure he was back there like, let's see, Samsung Galaxy S5. Uh, hold on. Yeah. Ark of the Covenant? Hey, let me move this big crate. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, don't, that wasn't the S5. <laughs> I'm not that bad, but geez. Right. Um, that one comes so with he, a hand crank. Yeah. Whenever he finally came back, he was like, yeah, we don't have that one. I'm like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? It's like going. To, you ever go to the Harry Potter ride at uh at Universal Studios where they do do the wand thing? It's like going to get a wand. Yeah. What are you gonna do with the phone? Look, dude, I just want to make phone calls and texting. Oh, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> the phone, the right phone will pick you. Like, dude. I thought it was gonna be like when you go get shoes. Like, hey, can I get this in a size ten? They come back, you know, we don't have a size 10. We have size 8. Well, that's not going to work, you know. <laughs> well, have you got any tin snips so I can cut my toes off? <laughs> so, thankfully, thankfully he did pay attention to what they did have. He goes, we have this one over here, the $700 one. I was like, okay, what's the difference between the $700 and the $800 one besides $100? He goes, because, you know, I could hear that one coming. Right, yeah, it's like, oh, you destroyed my joke. <laughs> 
Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the funny one around here, pal. So you work in a T-Mobile store. Stay in your lane. So, so he goes, nah, that's just a previous, you know, a previous model. There's like no big, you know, difference. I was like, oh, dude, wrap it up. You know, I'll, you know, I'll take it home now. And I, you know, so I got this new phone. And then today I'm getting ready to record the podcast because, uh, you know, my microphone is hooked up to the computer, which is how I record. Right. But I talk to you over my phone, right. and I'm I'm trying to plug the the headphone jack of my my headset into the phone, and I can't. It's not going in. I'm like, right. uh, I could There was no. There's no jack. There's no <laughs> headphone jack on it. You don't got jack, as they say. Yeah. Yes. So Samsung goes the way of Apple. When I bought the iPhone, it's my second one. Uh, I had an iPhone seven, and now I've got an iPhone twelve. And it's only got one port on it, the lightning port, which is a charging and listening port for a lightning port made set of headphones. And you can only do one thing at a time. You can't like plug your phone in and use headphones and listen like, you know, smart people used to do in the old days. Yeah, you can't charge your phone and use the headphones, I guess. Right. Right. It's on yours. Yours probably has USB-C. On the yes. bottom of it, which is gonna, which is a standard, and it's really fast. It's like 1.2 gig a minute or, or second or something. Whereas this one, the lightning port is like 350 meg a second, <laughs> so it transfers wicked slow if you're transferring up like I don't know 25 gigs of music. The ironically named lightning port. I think about this and I'm like, why am I complaining? It takes 20 minutes for me to upload my iTunes library onto this phone. Some of the songs on this took me 25 minutes to download in Napster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a net positive. All right, so this is going to be the week beginning January the 10th. But before we start, I have my very popular and always very well-received trivia question. I I like to think it's well-received by other people. Yes. Less so me. But yes, uh, let's go. So there is one mammal with many, many species of this animal. So much so that if you were to take all of the species of this one particular animal, 20 percent of the mammal population would be gone. This one particular animal and all its species constitutes 25% of the mammals on the earth. What animal is it? Going to answer this question at the end of the show in my David Attenborough voice. <laughs> we have to wait till we get there for me to do that. We're going to have to wait till the end of the show for you to get it wrong. You can't call David Attenborough wrong. Therefore, by default, I'm going to get this right. All right. So this is the week beginning, January the 10th, and it is your turn to start. January the 10th, 1956. Our good friend, friend of the show, Bill, Elvis Presley, records what becomes kind of his signature song, the pinnacle of his work for the of his early career in the 1950s. So 1956, Elvis Presley records the single Heartbreak Hotel. It's a great song, written by Mayborn Axton, Thomas Durden, and Elvis Presley. I think it was released on RCA Victor Records. It was right after they bought out his contract at Sun. Yes, we just talked about that a few weeks ago, yeah. Even today, I still know. I probably know all the lyrics to Heartbreak Hotel. Elvis Presley has a writing credit on there, because he probably just came up with a, oh, oh, oh. he's like, that's, that's a lyric there, so that's... I get a writing credit. If you get a writing credit, you get more money. He's probably swung in late to the studio and they're like, Elvis, dude, you're like, you're with RCA Victor now. You can't come 10 minutes late to these recording sessions. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. This is my baby left me. And they're like, stop the show. <laughs> that's, that's how we're going to open the song. You know? Don't say another word. Shut Don't up. say another word. You're going to mess it up. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, a fantastic song. It's, it's probably been on every single mixtape I've ever made in my entire life. Really? Yeah. It's one of the weird ones that I bought as a single. When I first started to drive a car, 
People listening to this show are going to think you're 90 years I old. I know. I'm not. I'm not 90. I'm considerably younger than that. But, like, all right, here's the funny thing with, with Elvis, okay? My parents liked two different kinds of music when they were teenagers. My mom liked Motown and didn't have any records. She listened to the radio. My dad liked Elvis and had every frickin' Elvis record you could shake a stick at. So, ultimately, I also had every Elvis record that you could shake a stick at. Is, would you say Heartbreak Hotel is your favorite Elvis song? For this period in his career, yes. What's your favorite Elvis song? My favorite Elvis song all of all is yeah. I Can't Help Falling in Love With You. Oh, that's nice. That is a nice song. My favorite song is Burning Love. Hunka, hunka, burning love. That's, that's like from like the late period where it's, there's like 17 people singing back up and there's a four brass bands all run aside and there's like it's absolutely amazing it's, you yeah. have to listen to it like in headphones and real loud because in between each verse you can hear him very quietly go <laughs> yep <laughs> last year at the haunted house like one of the last nights we were open i had to play like just a generic character i was like covering breaks and stuff like that so I was like a janitor and they gave me this like jumpsuit and I was like, hold on a minute. So I grabbed a belt and a couple of scarves and I uh -huh. made my hair up in a pompadour and I was nice. Elvis Presley, not zombie Elvis Presley, Elvis. <laughs> I was Just working at the haunted house. Please no pitches and don't tell Priscilla. Yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to the 11th, January the 11th of 1962, the legendary Los Angeles nightclub, the Whiskey A Go Go, opens up. Whiskey A Go Go was, uh, you know, I mean, it's been around since 62, but it yeah. probably had its heyday, I would say, in the 80s. With the, that was the ship that launched a thousand bands. That bar launched the, the doors. That was the L.A. rock scene. Yeah, yeah. That's where they came from. I, I mean, I, I follow the kinks on Facebook, even though yeah. if you add up the ages of all the kinks that are still alive together, it takes you back to the dinosaur age. Yeah. Um, because and, you're and, roughly 90 years old yourself. <laughs> right, yes. Oh, oh, oh. They, they post pictures every now and then of, of when they played at the whiskey in like 68, right. 69, 70. Yeah. I completely forgot that the door started over there too, yeah. but Because I, I always think of the Whiskey A Go-Go because of Ricky Rackman who owned the Whiskey A Go-Go like during the 80s right. was like a host on MTV. I don't know, he just kind of seemed like a schmoozer for all the bands and stuff like that because he'd be like, hi, it's Ricky Rackman. I'm like, who the, who the hell are you? Yeah. So yeah, he was like the owner of the whiskey at the time. So like, yeah, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, all those bands that, you know, came through there. LA Guns, remember them? Yes, LA Guns and the, this, another band is uh, where Guns N' Roses came from. Right. They were like... Hanoi Rocks? Oh, yeah, Hanoi Rocks. They could have been something if they uh, didn't hang out with Motley Crue. Well, it's one of those things. It's like pounds and pounds of cocaine, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> I really hate it when stuff like this happens. But upon further research, I looked up and I found out that Ricky Rackman did not own the Whiskey A Go-Go. Uh, he did own a couple of nightclubs in the L.A. scene, including... The Cat House and the Bordello. Uh, my mistake. Sorry, guys. Okay, back to the show. Yes, the whiskey. Um, the a go go part doesn't make any sense anymore, as I learned when I was talking to uh, my girl Anne this last week, because mm -hmm. I was I was referencing go go dancing in a monster movie. And she looked at me. She goes, "What? What's go go dancing?" And I was trying to explain it to her. And I'm like, "I I don't have. There's no words that describe what it is." That's one of those words that you understand what it means, but you actually don't know what it means. Right. 
You, you can't describe it. You have to show it. So, like, I get up on the table. I start taking off clothes and I wiggle it around. And she's like, what the heck? Hold on, hold on. Hold still. i got to build a cage. Hold on. Right. <laughs> Turn the lights on and off really fast. All right. What do we got for the 12th? Ah, for the 12th, uh, we're staying kind of close to where we just were. But in 1971, uh, Norman Lear's groundbreaking sitcom, All in the Family, premieres in the United States. Now, it doesn't sound like a big deal. It's ba- it was based on a long-running British sitcom called Till Death to His Part. But it definitely came into its own and it spawned was, several spinoffs here, too. You say it wasn't a big deal, but it was, though. That show, one, it was enormously popular. Mm-hmm. And two, it was very groundbreaking because there was a lot of subject matter that they tackled on that show that it's like, um, isn't this like, isn't this a sitcom? Aren't we supposed to be like laughing and stuff? Yeah, they no. definitely leaned into like current events where other sitcoms did not do that. But th- this one really leaned into stuff like Vietnam. Those were topics of conversation amongst the characters and race relations and racism and st- like all of these things that were not only in the news but were part of the zeitgeist in 1971. The death throes of the 1960s and the birth of the 1970s. There was a bunch of spinoffs from that show. The Jeffersons yep. started from that show. Gloria. That lasted like eight episodes, maybe, about his daughter. Yeah, Gloria. It lasted about two commercials is what it lasted. (laughs) I forgot that was even a show, right? Basically, All in the Family invented the very special episode that was popular, you know, in the 80s sitcoms. There was one, like, really harrowing episode where Edith, there's like a, a man, like, assaulting her. And she gets away from him by throwing, I think it was like burnt brownies in his face or, or something like that. Like I said, you know, five seconds ago, I was like, wait, this is this is a sitcom. This woman's getting assaulted, you know? Right. That was really heavy stuff that they came, they handled on that show. The, 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 the show that came after that one, which they, they turned it into, so I don't necessarily know that it's a spinoff, was called the Arch, Archie Bunker's Place, which focused on the bar that he ended up owning. It was yes. less good, but it was still topical. Right. The first episode of that show was about Edith dying. Yes. Dying between the end of All in the Family and the beginning of that show. And I can still very viscerally remember being super upset watching that as he was holding her slipper, talking about, I can't believe she's not here anymore. Right. It was an amazing part of TV. That was like 1977, maybe? 76 or 77? So that's early. That's like before Mr. Hooper died on uh, Sesame Street, even. And I was sort of, that's the first TV show that really got into the what death means that wasn't funny and the the longing for that person and all that stuff it was that was all done there yeah they got sick of milking deaths for laughs at that point <laughs> yeah like i was saying at the very beginning of the segment very very popular as a matter of fact my father's bowling team was called all in the family plus one <laughs> uh, my, my, yeah my father was the plus one all right, so January the 13th, 1920. The New York Times editorial runs a piece mocking, stating that rockets will never fly into space and saying that Robert Goddard only seems to lack knowledge ladled out daily in high schools. Yeah, so Robert Goddard, his response was, every vision is a joke until the first man accomplishes it. Once realized, it becomes commonplace. So, the, yeah, the New York Times was like, you're never going to get a rocket into space. Yep. And then, uh, yep. <laughs> well, it only took 40-some-odd more years, but they yep. got one there. Yeah, almost 50 years later, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Actually, the New York Times issued an apology, and it says right over here, I guess you could say they had to 
apologize. Oh. Uh-uh. Oh. oh. What's worse, that pun or my Elvis impersonation? Be honest. Uh, that pun was worse. <laughs> that said, it's not a written rule, but it should be one, If especially if you're writing editorials on paper, because people are going to clip those things and keep them. So you oh, yeah. never say never, because you never right. know. You'll, you'll never get that thing into space. Oh, yeah? And then 50 years later... You didn't do it, but some other guy did and figured it out. It was Ron Braun, right? Yeah, never, never predict technologies because yeah. you're wrong. You're going to be wrong, yeah. Yep. Look at Bill Gates. He said earlier on, no one's ever going to need any anything more than two megs of memory or whatever he said. It was it was something hilariously low. Yeah. yeah. Goddard was, uh, Robert Goddard was from Massachusetts, right? Springfield? Oh, was he? I think so, yeah. yeah. And was yeah. the father of the solid fuel rocket. My dad was enamored with him. He had a couple of, like, I don't know if they were books or with articles about him in it or magazine articles that he found about Robert Goddard. But they were around the house when I was a kid. Oh, wow. I remember reading about him as a youngster and being like, oh, wow, you know, rockets happened when I just before I was born. Because I'm not 90 years old, people. Um, (laughs) But seeing that history of him figuring out that as the fuel pushes, creates thrust and the weight of the fuel dissipates, you're going to get faster and faster speeds, and it's a matter of mass times the amount of fuel needed to push it up X number of feet is what's going to eventually get it into space. You just can't do it with solid rocketry because the fuel is too heavy. But, man, he got pretty close. Yeah, it must have been a bitch whenever they figured out that there had to be a escape velocity. It's like, all right, we're going up, we're going up, we're going up, we're turning left, we're turning left, we're turning left. Yeah, well, that's why it's, it's you know it's easier to take off from the equator or area around the equator. Why They launch rockets out of Cape Canaveral and not Cape Cod. Right, you're closer to the equator. Take off and you kind of go in the direction the Earth is going. You've got a thousand mile an hour push. All right. So what do we got for the 14th? January 14th, 1978. At the end of a disastrous tour across the United States, the Sex Pistols play their final concert at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. And it's a surprisingly terrible show. Made famous by virtue of the catchphrase that went on to launch a thousand documentaries about the Sex Pistols. Bill... Ha ha! Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Within a year, Sid Vicious would be dead. And that would be the end of the Sex Pistols for real. They put a record out just just six months or so before and were touring on it. That's Never Mind the Bullocks. It's the Sex Pistols, which is a great record. And then they were none. They became then a bunch of documentary fodders. Uh, You know, uh, John Lydon, over the last uh, several years, has gotten a lot, a lot of backlash because his views have become very, very conservative uh, as he gets older. John Lydon actually had some brain problems. Like um, he had, he had like a, a meningitis or something like that, and his brain like swelled up. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was trying to write his autobiography. He goes, and it took me months just to remember my parents. So, yeah, so he suffered some, like, memory loss and brain damage. You know, people are like, oh, what a sellout. He's, you know, super conservative now and this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. What an asshole. It's like, uh, here's a a bit of information for you. One, John Lydon has always been a huge asshole. That has has not changed. changed. That has not changed at all. Have you ever watched an interview with that guy? He's Difficult. He is definitely difficult. I feel partially sad saying this, and I and I don't mean it as a slight, because I'm going to explain what I'm going to say in a minute. But, like, he definitely knows how to milk the relationship that he had with Sid Vicious in the years after Sid Vicious died, where he could make proclamations like, if I had known better, 
I would have XYZ and saved or helped Sid Vicious. I would have, if I knew it was that bad, I would have done this. I would have, I should have done this. I should have done that. I've seen him do that in 10 different documentaries. Right. And I'm always like, yeah, dude, but you know, it's, it's easy to say that in the aftermath. Oh yeah. And again, and I don't doubt that sincerely he, he believes that he would do anything to bring him back, that he would go, if he knew it was like that, he would have gone to the Chelsea hotel or whatever. That's another thing too, that you, that seems to get lost about the sex pistols is they were kids. Yeah. They were kids. Sid Vicious was 22 years old when he died. Right. You know, he was 20, 21 years old when he was touring around in the Sex Pistols. Okay. Almost old enough to take bass lessons, Bill, at Guitar yeah, Center. Exactly. Almost old enough. I think I've told you that before. Do you know why he was such a terrible bass player? Because he never played it before? Yeah, because he wasn't a bass player. He was a drummer. <laughs> he was actually the first drummer for Susie and the Banshees. And John Lydon just recently was on the... I didn't see the clip. I just saw, like, a, a screen capture of it. Uh, he was on The Masked Singer. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I want to find that episode. I want to see, like, just the look on Jenny McCarthy's face because John Lydon is a vocalist. He is not a singer. Right. I wonder what he was dressed as and how he kept himself from going, ah, oh, yeah. like, imagine he was dressed as a cauliflower. Oh, yeah, I'm a cauliflower. <laughs> this costume's awful. <laughs> All right, coming up on the 15th. Jan oh, very similar. January the 15th, 1967, the Rolling Stones appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, and Ed Sullivan says, I don't have an Ed Sullivan impersonation, but Ed Sullivan says, uh, you got to change the lyrics to your song because uh, they, they didn't want them saying, let's spend the night together. So they changed the lyrics for that particular episode to say, let's spend some time together. And Ed Sullivan had asked a couple of bands to do that. Yep. Well, oh, not yeah. to do that song, but to change yeah. other lyrics as well. Knowing his audience were, you know, older adults and their teenage kids. and The famous uh, one was with Elvis. Was that on Ed Sullivan? Or uh, might have been another TV program, but... Elvis was filmed from the waist up because his gyrations were a little too suggestive for the home audience. But right, that was that was on the Ed Sullivan show. Turns out that wasn't Ed's call. That was Colonel Parker's call. Right, the Austrian guy with the cowboy hat on. It wasn't an American citizen. No, <laughs> he, Parker. <laughs> yeah, he did. Well, he didn't do it. He didn't do it to um, to censor Elvis. He did no, it to, to create controversy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like what you do. It's like yeah. It's like the Jaws model. What you don't show is what's really scary. Going back to the Rolling Stones during that performance, if you can find a video of it, like on YouTube or whatever, you can see like Bill Wyman and Jolly Watch just like rolling their eyes whenever the camera hit them because they thought it was so stupid that they yeah. had to change the words. Yeah, I, I think about that. I'm like, if that was me. Yep. If I was Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, I'm standing there on the stage at the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yep. Right? And he goes, now boys, I'm really glad that you're going to be here today. And uh, we're going to have a, a whole bunch of audience full of girls here for you. But, and then he goes through the whole, like, I need you to change this lyric in the song. I'd be like, man, I'm going to be in front of like 900 million people, you know? Eh, yeah. What are you going to do, fire me? Yeah. This one time, you know? I would have been like, all right. Oh, we're not going to say spend the night together, but we're going to incorporate the term thingabang into every other <laughs> chorus. All right, and wrapping up the week on the 16th? January 16th, 1939, the first daily newspaper comic strip of Superman by Jerry Siegel 
and Joe Schuster debuts, and within a matter of months is a almost worldwide phenomenon. It's the first really big superhero comic strip, and it helps lead to the creation of an industry that becomes the comic book industry. Superman is like everybody's favorite superhero that nobody actually likes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I guess it depends on how on how he's portrayed and in what stories Superman is in. But I like Superman stories. I like Superman. He's an interesting character if he's handled well. The thing is, like, uh, in my pea brain mind, you know, they've kind of reinvented Batman over the years. He's now the darkest of the dark of the dark dark night and all that. But Superman is such a Christ figure, you can't it, you can't make him edgy. I, I can't see you, them making Superman edgy. Well, that's, you know? that's the beauty of Superman is he's not edgy. He's the Boy Scout. He's the one who's given the choice, put in a position where he can either save Lois Lane or he can save some rando who's accidentally fallen off a scaffolding, changing the clock face at the Daily Planet. So he's able to save both. He's fast enough and, and selfless enough to do that. He's willing to put himself in harm's way to protect the rest of humanity. And there's a scene in the otherwise lousy Superman Returns movie with the grossly underrated Brandon Routh as Superman where he's running around trying to save people in Metropolis as Lex Luthor is bringing this other continent up. And it's just going from like one crisis saving one person at a time to the other for 10 minutes. It's fantastic. And it's tireless and it's selfless and it's it's about making sure that everybody else is safe before he is. And other superheroes have kind of glommed onto that in places and they have used that sort of steadfastness as a way to sort of ridicule the idea of the Superman, the man who, who ultimately can't die or will always sacrifice himself for, for people, the Christ figure as you describe him. Yep. But in the right hands, that could be done really, really well. I don't love that they've tried to darken him up like the comic series that was based on the game. That one, he kills the Joker in cold blood, he becomes a dictator sort of takes over the world because the world can't take care of itself, and he's like, I'll just fix everything. But right. beca he becomes like a monster. Okay, but I know that's not his nature, you know? Right. Yeah, they're trying to edge him up, you know, because, like I said, he's, he's, he's too good. I don't know. When he's used as a character who, who sort of comes in, like in the, the series Kingdom Come, where he's old and retired and finally puts the tights back on because all of the younger heroes are starting to kill criminals and murder villains and take the law into their own hands and not and dispense justice without mercy. He's Hulk Hogan having one last match. Yeah, he, he rounds up a bunch of older heroes and they go and they clean house. Like, that kind of stuff I really like about his character. Anyway, that's 1939. As I call it, the year before I was born. <laughs> Going on to the celebrity birthdays. January the 10th, 1945. Oh, the sexiest man alive. And I'm not, not even Paul Rudd. Rod Stewart. Ooh. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Actually, as the singer for The Faces, like, was distinctive and a band that rocked pretty good in the late 60s, early 70s, and then as himself, became a parody of himself. Yep. <laughs> the man who needs a lozenge. <laughs> he definitely does sound like somebody who's like, shouldn't you go gargle? <laughs> Women in a very, very specific age group love him. Yeah. Nothing, nothing says sexy like a... A guy who weighs 86 pounds, with a British accent, clearly a wig on, who probably smells like leather cleaner and old tobacco, wearing spandex pants and staggering around going, Hello, hello. Right to see you here. Are you going to finish that sandwich now? Right around that same time that the Rolling Stones are doing Let's Spend Some Time Together, 
Rod Stewart was pl- making music with Ron Wood, who ended up in the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. All right. Yes. Next up in the birthdays. January 11th, 1942, saxophone player Clarence Clemens, for a while, the sort of anchor point that wasn't Bruce Springsteen in Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, a extremely distinctive sax player and the guy who sort of set the tone for all other sax players, session men, etc., who were working in rock and roll at the time. He was very, like, charismatic. He, like, had a very, he had a presence to him, like, on the stage, you know. People loved him. He was a saxophone player. Who loves the saxophone player? Yep. Let me tell you, my mental image of him is Hollywood from Mannequin with a saxophone around his neck. Yeah. I swear to God. When I think of Clarence Clemens, I hear, Hollywood! Yeah, <laughs> and not, then a saxophone bleat. Not the same my, person, but yeah. He was in a movie in the 80s, though. Clarence Clemens was one of the three most important people in the universe yep. in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes. He's yes. the one that goes, party on, dude. And then he went, Hollywood! Yeah. Do you remember who the other two most important people are? No, I haven't watched that movie since I saw it in the cinema. One of them was... Martha Davis from the motels. Okay. And the other was Fee Wable from the tubes. Oh. All right. January the 12th, 1970. Uh, singer from the Rage Against the Machine band, Zach De La Rocha. I'm going to say frontman, not singer, because he yeah. doesn't sing. I know a lot of people that like Rage Against the Machine, and I'm not in that that group. I, I make a joke that it's not really necessary to own more than one Rage Against the Machine album. I don't know. To me, all this stuff sounds... Exactly well, the same. It, it's not hard to, to own all this. They only have three records. The first record's good. It's real good. Second record's really, really good. Third record, I don't get it. It's not good. I like the one where he, where he goes, something about politics. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much all. Funny story, like I, for the last, I don't know, couple of weeks I've been listening to some CDs I bought at a record store in, in Manchester, and one of the records I bought is Rock in the Suburbs by... Ben Folds, great record. And uh, the last, one of the last songs on it is the title track, which is one, it's sort of a funny song about new metal because he was making fun of Jonathan Davis and Korn when he wrote it. Right. Because Jonathan Davis had said some stuff about him on MTV about the Ben Folds 5 sucks. All right. So he wrote the song. And at the end of the song, it sounds like two minutes of Rage Against the Machine. And I'm like, how the hell did he get Zach Della Rocha to come out and parody himself like this? Yeah. And it sounds like Rage Against the Machine is playing the background. I'm, I'm like, I can't believe it. Finally, after two weeks of singing along with this, I go and look and I'm like, Rage Against the Machine had nothing to do with this song at all. It's all it's all Ben Folds, but it sounds just like him. Oh, is Ben Folds uh, doing the, the Rage Against the Machine voice? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And it's wicked <laughs> funny. It's it's like, he's like, y'all don't know what it's like to be rich, middle class, and why? And it sounds just like Zach Della Rocha. It's so <laughs> funny. Uh, Shots fired. Uh, I wonder if you ever heard it was like, hey, man, I was nice to you. It's corn that doesn't like you. Make fun of them. Because you know? uh, it, it all sounds the same. <laughs> oh, all right. So what do you got on the 13th? Oh, wait. I know who we have on the 13th. Who? January 13th. My brother. My yeah, brother. Norman. My brother Norman's birthday today. Happy birthday, Norm. Happy birthday. Right. Hey, Norman. You know what? The Batman TV show premiered on your birthday. <laughs> oh, wait. No, it didn't. <laughs> Go back to last year's show, kids, and you'll know what we're talking about. Sore, sore, sore tooth in this family. All right, uh, but who do we have for our celebrity birthday? January 13th. Actually, we have my brother, too, Aaron. So happy birthday, Aaron, on January 13th, brother man. But January 13th, for real, on this show, we have Richard Mall, born in 1943. And for those of you who don't know who he is, he is the penultimate star of the greatest three-dimensional 
$5 made science fiction movie partially funded with Lyra from an Italian company called Metal Storm! The Destruction of Jaredson! Which we reference a lot because we can never remember the movie. Is that the one with Molly <laughs> Exactly. No, it's the other one. <laughs> it it's the other 3D action-adventure movie from the 80s that I saw yes, in the theater. <laughs> yes, Only it's not as good as the one with Molly Ringwald in it. Right. Um, not Treasure of the Four Crowns. I gotta get that on DVD somewhere. Good um, luck. Richard Mall was also probably best known for being the bailiff on Night Court. Bill's your favorite sitcom. Am yes. I wrong? Yep. As we've said many times. We just referenced him a few months back because he was rotoscoped in the movie American Pop doing Howl yes. by, yep. uh, by Ginsburg. I know they announced kind of like a Night Court sequel sitcom starring John Larroquette. I wonder if they'll include Bull. I wonder if he'll make some appearances. Uh, I'm sure that they'll probably try and bring him back to at least be sitting in the the court audience or something. Yeah. Because he was such a big part of the the original show. And if they're going to bring back Dan Fielding, they might as well bring back. He's probably going to be the bailiff. Yeah. Well, we'll probably see. probably hire these guys for, like, you know, the cost of two sandwiches at the vending machine down yeah. the hall. <laughs> the same amount they were making in the 80s. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah, so you're going to get eight, $80 a week. $80? Ooh. A week. <laughs> That's like Carl Weathers at Arrested Development. Oh, yeah, you can right. take a bowl and you can make it broth out of that. <laughs> right, exactly. You got yourself some stew. <laughs> All right, next up on the 14th, January the 14th, 1915. Ooh, he's like your age, Jeff. Um, (laughs) Mark Goodson. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it should. Mark Goodson was the creator of basically every game show that Chuck Barris didn't create. Uh, Mark Goodson, Bill Todman production. I remember that. Seared into my brain like it's tattooed there. And it's probably cost me an algebra grade or two. (laughs) So I didn't have any space left for the distributive law. But yes. Mark Goodson, 1915. God, so he must have lost the easiest one. <laughs> so he was producing stuff into the 1980s. Wow. So he's, he was doing that for a really long time. He produced To Tell the Truth, which that was a cool game show. I think that's that's had several lives over the years. Right. Uh, What's My Line, which is almost exactly the same show. Price is Right and The Family Feud were all uh, right, right. Mark Goodson. I believe Match Game as well. Moving on to the 15th. January 15th, 1941. Art rock guy named Captain Beefheart, born as Don Glenn Valet, jumps into the rock and roll scene in the late 1960s, and with the help of Frank Zappa as a producer, pulls together one of the weirdest friggin' records ever called Trout Mask Replica, which I've listened to, and I love, and it is bloody unusual. That's uh, Captain Beefheart. Like after you brought him up uh, a couple of months ago, whenever it was, uh, I went and I listened to it. I was like, "This is one of those albums that Jeff would put on just to see how long it's going to take before someone says, what on earth are you listening to?'" Yeah, yeah. It, it takes time. You have to sort of settle into it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe it. It's the and like I'm deaf in one ear, but I'm still pulling out like little things when I hear. When I listen to that record, then I don't hear the next time I listen to that record, for example, I didn't hear the time before. It's And I don't know if that's by virtue of the production that Frank Zappa did. It might be just a distortion in your ear, Joe. Or it could just be a distortion in my ear, right? But it's, it's such a strange album, and it's it's really it's really fun to... Can't put it on and do stuff. <laughs> you can't. It's, it's not background music. You'll turn it off because it doesn't have a beat. 
It's all. It's like one of the jokes. If you go, if you go, if you want to listen to the whole thing and not go hunt around for it, it's on YouTube. Somebody's posted it a couple times, and one of the comments is like, "Hey, Captain, what time signature do you want this song played in?" And the answer was yes. So it's all over the place. All you can do is literally. It's a single activity record. All you can do is sit and listen to it, and in that, that's the art part of that album. That's why I love it the way that I love it. And wrapping up the birthdays, January the 16th, 1948, writer, director, producer, and composer John Carpenter, most famous for biggest grossing independent film of all time, Halloween uh, from 1978. And then he had his fingers in the pies of the sequels that have come out to mixed reviews over the past couple of years. I recently... I, I remembered this movie being on like theater wall posters and all that when I was a kid called The Eyes of Laura Mars. Yep. Man, God, that movie is stacked, dude. It stars Faye Dunaway, a very young Tommy Lee Jones. It was directed by Ivan Kirshner, who directed Empire Strikes Back not that long after. And like there's a bunch of other famous people in it, but the story was written by John Carpenter and it predates Halloween. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting movie to watch just because of how stacked it is with like everybody that's in it and stuff. But yep. I like his weird ass like college film that they turned into a feature length film called Dark Star. Yep. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's I did. it's not it's not a good movie. It's really slow and it's filled with a lot of like filler. <laughs> but Well, it, that's how Halloween some, is. Yeah, the, the Dark Star's worse though. Oh, Dark Star has like twenty minutes of a guy chasing a beach ball around the station. It's like dude, get to the point. Um, oh, Halloween has like 20 minutes worth of like slow pan out to the next yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's it's interesting enough that when he has good ideas and plays around with them, it really gets good. Mm-hmm. And he's able to capitalize on that in his later films to some extent in Halloween because it's about building kind of building tension, but certainly in The Thing, uh not long after that, he did Escape from New York and he also did Big Trouble in Little China, like all of these 80s films that are sort of iconic now. Remember right. Derision when they came out? But are great, great, fun, fun, relatively low budget. It seems like he's he's best known for horror, but like I forgot that he did Big Trouble in Little China. Right. Uh, one of my favorites from him, I gotta go back and watch it sometime soon, is uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, definitely a good flick. Yeah, I actually really, really enjoy his soundtrack work too. I have I have a couple of the uh, the albums, and I had the opportunity, but I blew it. I had the opportunity to go him see him perform live. Oh, nice. Yeah, but I yeah, I blew it. Uh, I'll kick myself in the ass for the rest of my life. You know, I didn't go see him in concert. You know, I've seen a bunch of bands that just got up there and played. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, my turn to pick the worst song ever this week. Uh, I don't even know how I want to approach this. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, let, me, let me give you the preamble to approach it. Like, I went and listened to this song. Mm-hmm. A couple times, and and did my research, like I always do for the worst song ever. Yep. And it filled me with the question, why, Bill, is <laughs> this the worst song ever? Well, I don't understand why Jennifer Love Hewitt. Why she? W- I mean, I okay. She enjoys singing. I enjoy singing. Don't give me a record contract, please. Don't. You know, she was one of those people, Jennifer Love Hewitt in the in the nineties. The the song we're talking about is a song called Bare Naked by Jennifer Love Hewitt. It was off the last album that she put out. Yep. 
she got her start really early. She was on Disney Channel's Kids Incorporated, if you remember that one. Yep. That was like the uh, that was like a predecessor to shows like Glee and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then later on, she was you know in Party of Five, uh, which was a TV show with Nev Campbell was on that too, I believe. Yep. And she did a couple of other movies too. She did like I know what she did last summer, and she had Can't two Hardly... songs on that soundtrack. Yep, and Can't Hardly Wait, which is something I always uh, talk about, but. What Jennifer Love Hewitt seems to be best known for at that time is she was a tiny framed girl with big ass boobs. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was actually a website called Jennifer Love Hewitt's Breasts at that time that used to get a lot of hits. I mean, and it was always like, a, is she going to post nude? Is she going to post nude? Is she going to post nude? Because this was early internet, you know? That's when that was still a thing, when that was still a big deal. Is she going to post nude? And she puts out this album called Bare Naked. Like, here it is, guys. You know? So, all right. <laughs> we should play a sample of this song. Absolutely, yeah. Let's, so let's, let's, let's do that. This is what I'm talking about here, okay? You tell yourself it wasn't you. And I know it's hard to hold it inside. It's days like jump into the defense of this song because there there may be some gaps in our understanding of jennifer love hewitt's career mm-hmm. one bare naked was her fourth album yes and the first three albums were surprisingly well received not in the united states because they were never released here the first one wasn't released it was released in japan yeah they japan. were all very popular in japan and, and australia yeah. too yeah so like cheap trick who probably would never have gotten out of wherever the hell cheap trick comes from indiana right uh, I want to say Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. All right, Chicago. Had they not been successful in Japan, right? She found herself being successful in Japan. She ended up recording an album because she had done the background vocals for the song "Toy Soldiers" by Martika, oh, future yeah. star of the worst song ever. Because that song sucks. <laughs> um, but the producer of that record is like, "Hey, this little twelve-year-old kid's pretty good," and convinced her when she was, I think she was gonna sing with Martika on a tour and uh-huh. got her to record and then really got the record released in Japan. Right. Japan, Japanese, it's her record sounds bare naked. sounds like J pop. It's kind of almost like a response or maybe even a ripoff of a lot of Morissette's ironic in a way, in an ironic way. If you've ever listened to J pop or I would say K pop, but K pop is way different now. Right. But if you've ever listened to J pop, it, that's what it sounds like. The thing with the Bare Naked, and the reason why I picked it, it almost has nothing to do with Jennifer Love Hewitt, is Bare Naked, the song, and every other song on that album, they were all songs that were written by Meredith Brooks. Now, Meredith Brooks had that song, Bitch, from a couple of years prior to that. Remember that song? Yep. Yeah, I do indeed. She's a one-hit wonder, this Meredith Brooks. It was almost like they said to her, like, you know, we really like your songs, but... We don't like you. Uh, we're going to give them to this Jennifer Love Hewitt because there's this website that's centered around her boobs and it's generating a lot of hits and we could probably make a lot of money off of this. Uh, the album did, I'm not going to say it didn't chart, but it didn't chart well. Yeah, it did nothing. It hit like number 35 and the, the top 40 and then it dropped 36. 
Right. I think the record was on like the Rising Stars chart or something, and it was like in the Hot 200, it was like 180, and then oh, that was gone. I was looking that up too. It was it was hilarious that like all the charts that it ended up on. Honestly, it seemed like they were making up charts just so yes. that they, yeah, it was like. The bubbling under Hot 100 chart. She was number 31 yeah. on that one. Yeah. <laughs> and it went to number 26 in New Zealand where the number 25 song was just two koala bears beating a wallaby to death. With <laughs> she went to number three on the song sung by Jennifer Love Hewitt chart. <laughs> the sad thing is like this, uh, this, they could just stick up like best of Meredith Brooks cover on this and stick. It also contains the song bit. Each of them are one hit wonders. Uh, right. Except this one's got no hit. It falls in that weird category, at least my American ear, mm-hmm. as like, no one is going to listen to this because this is a person who's on like a TV show geared towards 20-somethings and 20-somethings. In 2002, we're listening to Corn and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, and Rage Against the Machine, and they weren't listening to this. Right. But they just weren't. It just wasn't a thing. And it, it had some like adult contemporary time, and it, it charted very briefly, I think, there too, and... And then it disappeared because everything on those charts sounds like this. Right. And it had no crossover appeal. Yeah. The the thing with Jennifer Love Hewitt, and this goes back to, you know, earlier worst song ever alumni like John Travolta and Scott Bayo, is <laughs> they're pushed out there. It's like, can you sing? Uh, kind of. Here's an album, you know. Right. Jennifer Love Hewitt was, you know, popular with the teen audience and, you know, teen and older teen boys and stuff like that. She had a popular TV show. She had some popular movies. And then they're like, put out this album. And then it was like she wasn't in popular movies anymore. She did like Garfield. And she did The Tuxedo with right. Jackie Jack Chan. Chan. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> not, then, not his best work. No. And then there was another one that she did with Sigourney Weaver. What was it called? Heartbreakers? Yeah. yeah, actually, that wasn't a bad movie at all. That wasn't all. a bad movie at all, but that movie was about 40 minutes too long. There was It was over two hours. That's too long for a com- for a comedy. It's funny, it's like I'm looking at the, the Wikipedia page for this song now, and it says that the, the album version is 3 minutes and 42 seconds, but the single version is 3 minutes and 19 seconds. So you could make like a really extra good version at like 1 minute and 8 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and the supreme version is .02 seconds, so... Best song ever. Best song ever. Before we wrap the show up, I have my award-winning and very popular uh, trivia question. Trivia question was, there is one animal in the mammal kingdom, one particular mammal that has very many uh, different uh, species and breeds of this particular animal, so much so that if you were to take all of this animal off of the planet, the mammal population would shrink by 25%. What animal constitutes 25% of the mammals on the Earth? All right, so we're talking about a family of animals, of mammals, right? Yes. Because we're going kingdom phylum. If I said dog, I don't mean all the collies. I mean dogs and wolves included, but it's not dogs. Right. So, and I said I would do this in David Attenborough's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, planet Earth contains several billion pounds of animal forests and rainforests of the world. The largest family of animals appears to be the rodent family. Mice, rats, squirrels, chipmunks, goddamn. Ah, uh, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, that's a little too wide, but I'll give Rabbits. it to you. It is bats. It is what? 
bats specifically. Bats, bats specifically. Yeah, bats constitute 25% of the mammals. Wow. So, yeah, rodent, rodents is a little too wide of a, of a brush to be painting with. But, yeah, bats, I, I just read that statistic that there are so many bats in this world that they actually constitute 25% of the mammal population. And that's entirely, like, once I heard that statistic, I was like, oh, that's crazy. But then, like, it's not really surprising because just in Austin, Texas alone, there's this, like, one bridge that there's, like, a million bats, a million of them that live under this one bridge. So, yeah, bats are popular. I'm sure that if they clear out under Wayne Manor, <laughs> it makes sense that you can't really see how many there are because they only fly around at night, though. Yes. They're, they're fly-by-nights, those bats. <laughs> fly-by-night fly by rodents. Yes. Uh, anyway, that, that was a good trivia question, Bill. So I technically, I did not get that one, so. Well, uh, well I'll, give you, I'll give you half a point. I appreciate that. That is going to wrap up this episode for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends because friends don't let friends listen to those other podcasts. Ah, ha, ha. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night.